Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. Welcome to episode four of um, Radio Aspiral, and we have another great guest lined up for you. Let's take it away. Tonight it's writing, publishing, media and politics. I'll introduce you to our guest very shortly. Okay, you're very welcome to episode four of uh, Radio Aspiles uh, podcast. Uh, we uh, podcast and video cast. 
let's get straight on and tell you about my guest today. Linda Riesenberg Feisler began working at Procter & Gamble in 1979 and graduated from high school. Linda's career started as a technician working in the physical properties lab testing toilet paper. No sniggering at the back, she will explain all that. During her 26 years of the company, uh, computer technology was in the early stages and Linda's interest and assignments naturally migrated to this area with assignments from representing business requirements of computer systems to developing the technology needed by the users. Linda was one of a small number of non-college graduates promoted to management. Linda's imagination and love for writing and creating were never far from her mind and her hands. Feeling stymied and hindered in the corporate world, she resigned from Procter & Gamble in 2006 to pursue, pursue a more creative way of life. She always wrote from childhood to present day. In 2015, after discovering a rejected Star Trek The Next Generation script she had sent to Jean Roddenberry, she organised the hundreds of scenes previously written into her first novel. Blind Influence was published initially by uh, an author solutions uh, service. Um, Linda also teaches oil painting and previously worked for Kevin McPherson between 2006 and 2009. Um, McPherson is an internationally known master artist. Linda also is the producer and host of a podcast uh, called Art Chat. She interviews master artists of uh, today, exploring the skills needed to become a successful artist. Linda completed her first trilogy of the Blind series. Blind Influence is a three-time award-winning novel. It was followed by the award-winning Blind Persuasion, and recently launched Blind Alliance. Being an artist, Linda enjoys designing her book covers, self-publishing her work from formatting to marketing. She is currently working on the second trilogy in the series. Uh, it's influenced by John Jakes, Robert Lundrum and Aaron Sorkin. Linda's interest in politics and history plays an important role in her work. The premise for the Blind series, set in the 1980s, revolves around one question. I find this fascinating and it'll play into our, particularly our later part of the interview. Listen to this. Can one politician, a female lawyer and an MI6 agent make decisions that divert us from the divisiveness that engulfs the world today? Let's go and talk to Linda. Okay, and Linda joins us now. Uh, Linda, you're very welcome to uh, Radio Spoil. Oh, thank you for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun, Nick. We I hope talk so. a lot on, yeah, talk a lot on Facebook, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of interesting topics. So I, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. We, we certainly will. Uh, Linda, I, 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 like with all uh, the guests I've had on, uh, I, I'm sure you recently uh listened to the last uh, episode we had with, with mark levine on and we talked an awful lot about publishing and self-publishing and i suppose the whole uh, you know 
uh, in the author area that's that's obviously going to be a major part of of our uh, discussion today but mm-hmm. like all my guests i like to just you know helps the audience just to introduce you to so uh, we're going to start really we're going to go far back right back to the beginning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, let's not get into the age thing that's not <laughs> no no i no no never ask anyone a man or woman <laughs> at their age uh but yeah let's so let's let's step back a bit um okay. you're from the u.s yes i am grew up um about 30 miles south of where i currently am in ohio so uh yeah that it was I, you know there was nothing special about my childhood mm-hmm. um you know, typical thing. Had a bunch of friends in the neighborhood. There was, there was no politicians or rock stars uh, in the in the family. Uh, well, actually, um, ah, Daryl Pace. See, here we go. Yeah, yeah, Daryl Pace. I don't know if anybody knows Daryl Pace, but he was a gold medal winner uh, in the Olympics for archery back when I was a kid. So he was kind of our only, you know, oh my God, it's Daryl Pace type of of thing <laughs> in in our little town. There but you go. Um, funny, funny. Yeah, Mark, but, Mark was telling us as well that his his father. Uh, also attempted to qualify and came marginally very very close to to, to actually qualifying as a runner in the Olympics for the uh, the US. So yeah, it's always fascinating with families. And actually, that's something else as we talk about the our early upbringing and how it influences in what we do in life. Um, I I I'll later in a much later episode we'll actually be talking about family and ancestry because I know it's a fascinating mm-hmm. thing for people. Right. right. So Ohio. You grew up in, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right uh, you know, right below the Great Lakes, in case uh, folks are wondering where it is. But um, when I was, a, we went on a trip to France, my husband and I, and whenever they asked us where we were, I would say Ohio, and then they'd look at us kind of strange, and I'd go, just somewhere in the middle. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so was, they know where California is, they know where they New do. York they know, is, but they never... You. And maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe Florida, and vaguely yeah, maybe right. where Canada is, that's that bit above America. Um, right, right. Yeah, so basically, you know, with childhood, the only thing that, um, you know, I, kind of pertains to what our talk is today is I kind of, you know, grew up writing. As as I always say, most kids, um, their parents give them crayons and a coloring book and everybody's coloring in the little shapes and everything. Yeah. And I'm the one that's writing gibberish, you know, trying to write letters instead of coloring things in and making up a story for the whole page. So, so you were kind of a, 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 a sort of by teenage years, you were sort of a, a a, a kind of a a, a budding uh, Anna Frank. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I never did a diary. I thought it was more yeah. fun to be imaginative. <laughs> yeah. Know? So I always made up stories and always wrote scripts for my favorite TV shows uh, that I was watching at the time, and you know, just a bunch of dialogue and and everything. Um, we put on shows um, when the VHS camera came out. That was probably our most fun because we would write spoofs of different shows and then we would record mm-hmm. them on the VHS camera that really dates me but um you know that's that was that was our saturday night our saturday afternoons into saturday night fun that we used to do in the neighborhood so always had a background for writing always did a background for um you know film and things like that always wanted to do that now linda so the writing book was was there from an early stage but you know as as all those uh writers uh who want to do it uh, full-time we quickly realize that it's not kind of like the easiest and best career to get into if you want to make it your 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 living uh, as right. a rare, uh, <laughs> roof and food on the table uh, kind of uh, uh, living so right. we kind of end up 
for a time in our lives doing other things and you sort of started off uh, doing some other interesting things. So tell me a little bit about the sort of the career <laughs> and the, the boring working life before I really got <laughs> to what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, well, it was it was kind of there's a thing that happened with um, my folks, I, which I, I will share um, my brother, my, well, let's, let's go back a little bit. You talked a little bit about uh, genealogies. Mm-hmm. My dad was actually the baby of nine uh, siblings. And uh, he was the only one that finished, col- or finished high school. So um, when my brother graduated, who was five years older than me, he went on to college. I graduated, and my parents asked me where I wanted to go to school, and I said USC, and Dad said, I have no idea where that is. And I said, Southern Cal, and I want to go for film. And he's like, that ain't happening. So you can go to UC, which is University of Cincinnati, and I was like, nope, you know, that, they don't have film. So I, what I ended up doing was um, basically working at Procter & Gamble mm-hmm. and um, started out in the physical test lab where we tested toilet paper. So, um, and, I, and when I say that, everybody just kind of gets this look on their face like, and how did oh, you my God. do that? How did you go? Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know where you go, right? You yeah. go to that bathroom scene, and, and that's not what we did. But <laughs> and it's always a good joke, always gets a good joke, because I say I didn't literally test toilet mm. paper. But, um, yeah, so you know, ten- tensile strengths, the strength of the paper, flushability, things like that's what we did. <coughs> so did that for um, about eight years and you know, really felt... Um, the creativity and everything being sucked out of my body the more I did that. Um, but the, the good thing is, is on breaks and on lunch, um, and then I had these writing marathons all weekend where I um, basically would come home from work on Friday night and just start writing till about 3 or 4 in the morning, crash out for a few hours and continue to write. Um, but none of that really... Um, you know, at that time, we're talking the only way you really could publish was with a publishing house. Uh, so, you know, you had to find an agent, you had to write letters, you had to do a, a number of things to try and, try and get published, to try and get their, their eye more or less. So publishing world was really different than it is today, back then. Um, worked at Procter & Gamble for 26 years, um, had back surgery uh, about six months before I left. I came back from that and... You know, I was working in a, a field um, where I would be reporting to engineers, and there weren't a lot of women engineers back then, so there was a lot of male engineers. Um, they all went to college. Some of them went to Ivy League schools. So there was a bit of a struggle, if you want to call it that, where, um, you know, the, the, this, the real superiority complex, if you want to say that, kind of came through. Um, you know, being told that I didn't have a thinking process at one point in mm-hmm. the career. It was just really kind of, you know, interesting. So after about 26 years, I, I was hired in as a, a technician, which is non-management. And um, after 23 years, I had a really fantastic manager who went to bat for me. I had actually been doing the job of a manager um, for years before that, but he actually went to the bat for me and promoted me to management, got me promoted. And I was probably one in a handful of people that they ever promoted to management without a college degree. So I was pretty proud of that um, feat. And it's, it was really kind of interesting too, because the HR director, when he hired me, asked me where I saw myself five years after being hired. And I told him managing people and managing projects. And he said, it'll never happen because I don't have a college degree. And, um, yeah, so I proved him wrong. So I had accomplished what I wanted to do there, and 
was and, ready and to move. I suppose you ask, I mean, I can think back to the time, God, 10, maybe more than 10 years ago, where I kind of also made that step out of what what we, I mean, obviously it's not the same for everybody, what we'd call that, that sort of nine till five routine. And I sort of right. remember the trepidate the the excitement but the fear you know the trepidation of making that move and thinking am i doing the right thing and can i do the right thing and is it fair for everybody around me to make this uh, a kind of kind of uh, decision was there a moment for you when you went this is now enough of this and i've got to i've got to give the writing a go i've really got to start to focus on that as something more than just writing when i come home well it- Back in the 90s, I had started painting, and we'll talk about the painting aspects of my life later, but um, I really knew that I had to get out uh, and start doing something more creative, more Mm -hmm. in line with what I wanted to do before um, I actually started working at Procter & Gamble, so it's never really left me. Like I said, I wrote all during that time. Sure. Um, Imaginary things and uh, scenes for a book that I ever wanted to publish and ended up publishing, but... um, you know, yeah, that there was um, P&G made it kind of easy for me to decide that it was time to leave, mm-hmm. and that I didn't have children. It's just my husband and I, and my parents. Um, my mother had passed about four years prior to that, and my dad had Alzheimer's, and it was getting to the point where he was going to start needing a lot more attention mm-hmm. and, and help. And I came back from uh, having back surgery, and it found out that they had. <laughs> without any legal issues here, but, you know, that they basically downrated me while I was okay. out on disability, um, kind of, you know, not the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it, so, it, so at that point, it was kind of like, do I really want to keep fighting yeah. for this? I mean, it was a constant fight. And I just, you know, I have a very understanding and lovable and support and loving husband. And he just basically said, give me six months and we'll get our finances in order and, and you can walk out. And that's what I did. Okay. So, so um, yeah. Just give me a decade when we are, because I'm just trying to get my head around what publishing would sure. the world would would have been in that decade. Are, are we 80s, 90s? Uh, no, 2006. Okay, okay. so so things had, had significantly come on. It, it was very much a different world. This wasn't the publishing world, I suppose. Of the, we talked a little bit about this with, with Mark as well. This wasn't to, to remind our listeners who haven't heard that program. This wasn't the publishing world where, in the 70s and 80s and even up to the 90s you could still as an author without an agent directly approach quite a number of publishers uh, and an awful lot of that has changed now now there's that brick wall called you know agents uh, mm-hmm. that you've got to go through most publishers won't even entertain you you know right. uh, if you if you want to approach them so you've kind of got a, a two-layered process before you even have a chance to get on uh, an editor's table and I suppose it's the first thing that most authors, it's the road that they, they look initially uh, to go down. That's kind of slightly changing now, you know, in, in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. But even up to the late 1990s, it was still... And I, I think I've always said this, that I don't know, let's get your thoughts on it. But I've I've always found that actually in, in some kind of way, almost like a, a discipline, there there is some method and madness and sense in also trying to go down initially that road no matter whether you're successful or not that there there are some benefits just just give me your your thoughts on on that but yeah i mean 
I personally mm-hmm. have not gone down that road, but that's a personal choice that I have made. Um, there are times when I when I start to say, well, maybe I should start looking to see if I can find an agent. I'm on my mm-hmm. fourth book, you know, uh, starting to build the author platform. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm questioning if I should start doing that because I have some content that I can um, actually put in front of them that yeah. that they might be interested in. I, I didn't initially go down that track because I didn't, you know, without having something published, without having a bit of a, you know, number of people who want to read my books and, and uh, no experience in that area, I didn't think that I'd had a really big chance. And I wrote a couple agents and things like that and, of course, got the rejections that, yeah, that you yeah. normally get. And, and I just thought, you know, there's nothing really stopping me from going ahead and doing this on my own. Um, so, yeah, so I... So I so let's let's could be, let's let's explain because uh, obviously we 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 have a, a viewership today and and you know some of them will be interrogating uh, maybe are thinking about going down the publishing line haven't uh, really explored it. so I suppose maybe for them the first question they're asking is well well hang on if you don't go to publishers uh, and you don't go to agents and you can't and that's very difficult to do and that takes ages and you mightn't be successful then, <laughs> then hang on a second then yeah. sure, well what other way is there but there is another yeah. way yeah there well there's a couple different ways mm-hmm. and and i what i ended up doing is i found ally which you're a, a member of yeah. um the alliance of independent authors and Ter- terrific um, organization to support yeah. authors who maybe and both, both kind of authors who want to go down the traditional way but Many of those members also have gone the other way, and this is what we're going to talk about, self-publishing and and, uh, being an indie author. Right, exactly. And uh, basically, I was starting to learn a lot about self-publishing through Ally, but um, I really wanted to get that first book out there. I was being really impatient. So I ended up going to a little vanity press um, with my eyes open, which is different than some people do you know you sign up for like author solutions or yeah. uh you know this this happened to be dog ear uh publishing and, and and it was a great group i met with them for two hours beforehand i had all the questions that i needed to ask and wanted to make sure that i could retain the rights to my book wanted to make sure there was no problem if i canceled the contract after we published so the thing that i was light on at that time was formatting and and cover design and mm-hmm. and you could probably still argue that I'm still, you know, a little, need a little more experience in that yeah. area. But, um, you know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to get that book out and I wanted to take the time when Dog Ear was <coughs> publishing my book and working with me to actually learn how to do this myself. So I took the pressure of publishing my first book off of me, paid them the contract, the money to do it. And I told them up front, you know, after this is published a certain amount of time, I am probably going to cancel our contract. And they were like, that's no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, we were very upfront with one another. Um, you know, and I did uh, probably about three or four months after that cancel the, the contract with them. Because basically, you know, when you, went, when you enter that contract, uh, you end up with like 50% of the, the book royalties going to... Um, them, I guess, and then forty percent to the distribution agent, and you end up basically with a dollar or two on every sale. And like we have always said, um, they like some of the publishing houses. Unless you're a big name, you don't get a lot of marketing. So you had to learn how to market your own book as well. So, um, you know, as I thought, well, I'm doing all this work. Why am I giving them all the money? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I just kind of, you know, we ended that contract. And by that time, I had learned enough to publish my second book 
basically all on my own. I did the cover design. And that's I really, that's, that's, I suppose, if we just explain to people, you know, the, the choices I suppose you have is you can go to, you know, uh, a multiple of, of we, we won't start uh, dropping names and, you know, <laughs> yeah. up there, but, but essentially, you know, anybody who's, who's explored uh, self-publishing or literally has gone to Google and stuck in self-publishing, you know, you'll get a, a multitude of, of uh, author solutions owned companies. You'll get companies like, you know, uh, Mill City Press, you'll get, you know, Dog right. Air, uh, you know, you'll get Matador, you'll get, you'll get, you know, and, but like anything in life, not all companies are equal uh, in a sense of the... Okay, Mick, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Your <laughs> picture's just frozen there. We'll just bear for a second and see does it just pick up and I'll, I'll just keep talking. Um, yeah, so you've got a multitude of, of different companies and, and different, uh, I suppose, that, that, that offer different quality and different terms. And I suppose essentially then the the other side of it is like you having had that experience of you know working six months 12 months having a book out then you go is there a better way to do this and that's suppose when you really as a self-published author start to become your own manager of the project rather than paying somebody a handing out the management uh, process you actually take that on board and you essentially Okay, sorry, we just had a connection problem there for a few moments, but uh, we have Linda back with us. Yeah, Linda, so <laughs> just on the, we, we were talking about, you know, uh, the, the other side of, of self-publishing, instead of going to some a company as such to do it for you, that essentially you start contracting out, whether it's a, a designer, a book designer, whether it's a, a formatter, a, a marketeer. But so, so talk to us about that process a little from your perspective and, and, and how you found it in comparison to somebody else doing it for you. Yeah, it, it's um, Ally helped a lot. Uh, and basically, I knew at that point that I would need an editor for sure. Um, so Trying to find an editor became an issue. Uh, book formatting, there's a lot of helpful information out at CreateSpace. They have uh, actual templates that you can use, and um, that's basically where I went for my second book, and my third book, actually. And then, um, as far as cover design, there are a number of freelance cover editors out there. I mean, Fiverr was one place, a, a friend, another mm -hmm. author friend of mine went to Fiverr and found somebody. Um, I basically decided that since I'm also an artist that I wanted to do my own. So then it became a search for software and I ended up using Adobe, um, I think it's ID is the little yeah, thing that's yeah. by the box, the creative uh, thing. So, and, it, and it has uh, directions and instructions on how to create a book cover front, back, and spine out on CreateSpace, step-by-step -step instructions on how to do that. So since a lot of my work career was around computers as well, uh, designing computer systems and bringing business requirements and things like that, I didn't have a fear of computers, so decided to tackle a lot of that myself. But one thing I wouldn't tackle um, is editing. I still have a, an editor that I send my work to because uh, another set of eyes uh, is really, really good. Right, and, but and I, it's, it's, isn't it, it's a major thing that uh, from doing my own consultancies with authors, you know, usually at an early stage, I try to get an understanding of because every author, no matter what their skills are, they, there's some skill set that they can bring to the project. But I think the crucial thing is 
understanding and accepting that there are that you're going to find there are certain parts of it whether it's the editing whether it's the marketing whether it's the formatting whether it's the designs somewhere you know the it's not that you can learn you can learn those skills over time but ultimately if you're coming to it for the first time you've got to kind of like acknowledge that there are certain areas that you're not going to be able to do and it's right. probably not advisable to attempt to do it because ultimately right. that book has to be of the standard that any book is going to be uh, from any major publisher and if it isn't the reader is going to quickly spot that the editing's poor or the design looks awful uh, and, and they're crucial things right right um yeah and and exactly what you said around cover design i'm very very artistic so my mm -hmm. my covers are totally different than what other book covers are and that's another thing i'm questioning right now is like yeah. you know do i need to do i need to go back and redesign the covers on these but being an artist mine are very artful and are not what you would consider an industry standard and then there's also a part of me that says you know this is me i, I yeah. want to put this out this way and um, you know, I've had a lot of great feedback on, you know, gee, can you just like, can I have a poster of this because it's so pretty? <laughs> you know, so, so, and and I sell to a lot of artists, so they appreciate the cover. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, there's, there's, there's things that you have to decide what you're going to take a hit on, what you're not going to take a hit on. Um, I have a really, really good editor. The first book that I sent her. Uh, was actually more than what we had agreed to um, for her to do on the book and editing. Uh, so I ended up paying her a little extra mm -hmm. uh, because I, I, I didn't feel like I misrepresented what we were doing, but we certainly had a disconnect <laughs> is, is what the book needed. So so felt a little bad about that. Um, so be aware of that, too, because there is language and vocabulary that you need to learn along the way as well. So copy editing and, you know, a, a full edit are totally and different content things. Editing and, yeah, content you editing, yeah. understand what level of, and ultimately, I think when you go to a professional editor, and really, if you decide that you need assistance, I think it's important as well, isn't it? to go to a professional who does that you know i yes. mean yeah for example as you say the artwork that you've done because that's been a sphere of your your life and you, you that's one of your great skills uh, but i have so many people who say well you know um for the editing um my um my uh, tutor in college says they can edit the book and i'm going <laughs> no 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 your tutor in college might be the most eloquent and articulate you know man or woman that you've ever met but they are not a professional editor and right. a professional editor can understand where the work is when it, it's initially passed to them and what level, level it needs to be and, and what kind of editing they can appraise uh, and and you know give that work uh and, and i suppose it goes to you know everything else well you know my my cousin uh is is kind of handy on computers so i've decided to that he's going to do the uh the formatting yeah right. okay let's see how that goes so you know it is important that you you assess your project and that it's your project and you should be proud of it right. but and when you hand it over that you're handing it over into professional hands and it's right. if, if you if you don't have the the financial investment to do that then sometimes it's better just to improve all the other areas and then when you're ready then you know uh, go for it and, and and do it 
Yeah, and one area, Nick, Nick, I, yeah. Uh, excuse me, I, that I'd like to get your input on is um, I used to do a little self-publishing group. We used to get together on uh, Thursday evenings and talk around, talk about self-publishing. And um, I really think there is, and, and it, this is my opinion, mm -hmm. I really think there is a misrepresentation of what to expect of beta readers in your book. I mean, I have a lot of people that are skipping, mm -hmm. that were in my group, that were skipping editing because they would put it out to nine beta readers to read and reply to. And I, and I, I think beta readers are great for content of, of story and storyline and finding out where, um, yeah, yeah. They, you know, where some holes may be that you need to fill. But I don't particularly think they're mm. editors. Unless you happen to have a really good friend who is a really professional, really good professional editor, then I don't have, you know, I don't have a biggest issue with it. But, you know, it, well, and, and the interesting thing with that went through that to take the, the it one mm. step further, they were saying, you know, I can't, you know, I can't seem to get books into bookstores. Yeah. And I was like, because you haven't had it professionally edited, you know. Yeah, I suppose on the, on, on, the, on the beta readers, uh, it, I suppose it works differently for 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 different authors. My my approach would be, really, you know, as you say, your 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 beta readers are not your editor, um, right. and maybe uh, to go to that stage, that that really should happen before you pay a thousand dollars to a professional editor to edit it really the, the beta readers should be looking at the book and as you say should be looking at that plot line there on chapter three that you introduced that doesn't make sense or i don't find that believable or do you know what i'll be honest i started to lose a little bit of interest halfway through the book or it, it you just you know the ending was a bit disappointing not whether it's mm -hmm. good or bad but just it didn't quite make sense or it didn't quite add up or right. Or you know you're describing this as a, a a fantasy science fiction book, but you know I've read plenty of sci-fi books, and this didn't really strike me as that. It's like more a sort of a, an urban book, you know. It's not quite, you know. So that's where I think the the beta readers and the mom and dad, cousin, brother, granny, you know, who <laughs> reads the book can be helpful. But right. please don't use that core of people to actually edit your book that's right. you, you introduce them when you you go the end at your manuscript and go that's as much as i can do now now i go to the next stage of developing it and and identifying if there's something wrong with it if it doesn't read right if it something doesn't work with it and then when you feel that you've got all that concept done and it is now it, you've got the feedback then right. you know in other words don't mix beta readers up with the the bottom end reviewers who are assisting and maybe helping you to get a bit of kudos to get books into bookstores real bookstores or get it to the attention of people you know so don't use it right. backwards that's so that's what i'll say on beta readers yeah yeah yeah, I think we both kind of agree yeah. on that one. So, yeah. and, and you, you know, you made a good point too. I mean, you know, I have never spent less than best less than a thousand dollars on editing. I mean, my editor, any professional editor, will give you their background. All you mm -hmm. have to do is ask, yeah. you know, and and tell you what you do. And anybody who can't provide that background, you know, and and any editor I, as well yeah. who's professional knows that part of the role in working with a client because it's a client relationship is exactly. that you, you know you you 
you offer that all, you say look uh, I'll, I'll edit the first five or ten pages you can take a look see what, what the process might be like um, if you're happy with it fine you know or here's um, here's the names of uh, authors or books that I've worked with you can get a good feel of this is their finished work you can go right. well you know that read well yeah th this sounds like this you know rather than because it's it's an important relationship and it's fundamental if that relationship doesn't work uh, on your self-published book and it goes wrong and you're not happy uh, with the work being done then you've got to question the whole project and moving it on until you, you mm -hmm. fix that part. So, it, you know, it's a really important relationship. Probably it's the most important relationship. And I threw yeah. that thousand dollar figure really, I mean, that would be, quite frankly, that would be for a, a reasonably light sort of edit. That wouldn't be any kind of a, a serious, you know, certainly getting into content uh, editing or, or serious back and forths over a month or two of a project. Uh, believe me, if um, any editor was a, uh, was doing two or three months work uh, on a book and they were charging uh, an author a thousand dollars I don't think they'd be in business too long no I don't either yeah so that's yeah and that's one of the reasons why I said if I was going to you know skimp anywhere little quotation marks around the word skimp um, you know, it would be more on the cover design and the because I can handle I can do that you know I yeah. I feel comfortable I feel comfortable doing that and yeah, you know, and quite honestly, at some point, if a publisher decides that they want to take me on as a client, and and I want to enter into that contract with a, a big publishing house or whatever, they're going to redo my covers anyway. So yeah, yeah. You know, so that the cover to me wasn't as important as editing. And again, that's just that's me. That's the way I think. And um, so after I put all the book together, I I sell it up through uh, CreateSpace and uh, Amazon, and there are a whole school. Uh, there's a whole another conversation we can get around with exclusive to Amazon, or do you want to be out on as many uh, platforms as uh, are out there, like uh, Nook and Kobo and uh, all the other uh, for for, for ebooks now, yeah, yeah, for ebooks. Um, so. You know, and then I go through another edit, uh, basically as a copy edit. I, I order a proof. I don't put it out until I go through that book. Um, I order a couple proofs, actually, and then you know, my husband reads it, goes through and finds errors, because there are still errors, even though you mm -hmm. had edited yep. Edited. I found, you know, I found a lot of errors after that that I and, didn't And catch. the fact is, that goes for not just self-published work, but how many publishing houses, you know, yeah. heavy, <laughs> large publishing houses have put out books, you know, few books are absolutely 100% when they hit the uh, the stalls yeah yeah i it was i read recently a uh, book by larry you, you may know him ty i think it is tye he wrote the bobby kennedy book oh yeah yes yeah, yeah. and uh, i was reading through that and i was really impressed because i got like halfway through the book before i found the typo and <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately it was one of these ones that made me go back and read the page because it was a date they were off by a year and the same date was three paragraphs above so that kind of made me feel better as an independent yeah. author that that big mistake, you know, made it out. But it's still, you know, it's still a mistake. I, I keep wondering how many times they get emails from folks going on page 120 because <laughs> I get emails. So. <laughs> and I suppose but, the, the, the other aspect of it is as well that I find um, obviously uh, you're in the U.S. I'm in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, another frustrating thing uh self-publishers find as well as um all books and, and it's something obviously to consider at the the editing stage is 
uh, essentially where you're publishing your book obviously an ebook can go to multiple global markets but essentially mm-hmm. a writer is writing in either american english or they're writing in what we call british uh, english and of course that's different and the amount of frustration i get back from authors who say you know that fucking so-and-so write, wrote a, an awful review of my book on amazon and all the errors and stuff they pointed out was the fact that my book is in British English because I'm a British citizen and you know that was where my initial yeah. audience is and they don't see that and I find it fascinating because um, I suppose it's partly because a large publishing houses uh, tend to sell books by territory so there's a there's the American English book for the uh, the, the uh, North American audience and then of course they sell the territorial rights for you know British English whether it's Australia or the UK you know or Ireland or, or whatever uh, but yeah mm-hmm. it just it just that just came to me you know a, another frustrating thing that that self publishers uh, come across <laughs> which which other authors don't seem to come across but then uh, they they have the benefit of um, a large publishing house of being able to produce you know different versions of a book Right. And yeah, and it, I, there may be a couple folks I know in self-publishing that actually are starting to to do that themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I have not done that. I'm kind of at the beginning of my my author career here. So yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, so I, I I haven't done that, but yeah, that certainly would be a big issue. And the interesting thing is when you were talking as I realized that I have a number of of British fans um who have read my book and I, you know, I I I guess because they're used to me, they they talk with me and all that. They know it's in American English and not British English. So, um, I suppose yeah. that, that that really takes us on because you know you're an author. Tell yeah. us about your books. Tell us what you oh. write about. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I I started down this path back when I was working at Procter and Gamble, mm-hmm. uh, as I said earlier, and. Um, it's basically the tagline that I came up with is kind of like Jason Bourne meets the good wife in the West wing. So it's a mystery espionage um, and it has uh, a lot of political intrigue in it. And um, basically it's, it's three characters, uh, one female, two males, an MI six agent, a um, female lawyer, and then a politician here in the United States. And it basically goes back to asking a question of, if we were able to do something different back in 1980s, in the 1980s, would we be where we are today politically? Um, so it's set in history. And yeah, exactly, because the, the, the book, now I, I know one of them is set in, is it the 1980s, but are they all set in the 1980s or did they yeah. move? Okay, they're, they're all, so, so just, just for people, and we'll, we'll have all the, the links uh, wherever people find this podcast or video cast. Uh, it's called The Blind Series. Right. Uh, so there's blind influence, blind persuasion, and blind alliance. That's correct. T- talk to me a little bit about the challenges that an author has when they have to set, and we'll we'll take us for example your books in the 1980s, because it seems to me that that's that's really because here we are in 2017. That's got to be still the same challenge as setting a book, whether it's in the 1980s or 1880s the challenges are still the same to understand right. well what was going on there politically technically what was going on which is a fundamental thing because you know how often do you right. say how, how the hell did that, that you know you're talking about a mobile phone in the 1980s you know or, or you know so just tell us about right. the challenges of that for an author yeah well it, you hit on it uh, right away because in the 1980s uh the early 1980s uh, uh computers weren't really 
commercially available a household at that thing, time. Yeah. Yeah, and and the only phone you had was one that was hardwired into the the, the wall. <laughs> so if you know Sean or or Nicole need need to call someone, they have to physically walk to a phone and find a phone booth or or to a phone and call. They can't just whip out their cell phones. Right. So you know, and I lived. You know, I'm living this time, so you know I keep going back to you know. Okay, in 1980, did I have a computer in 1980? No, yeah. I didn't. So that's one of the things. But it, one of the reasons why I call it the Blind Series is because there are so many really little things that we didn't know about that influenced us through that time period. Mm-hmm. Like um, there's a an Operation Mockingbird that the CIA had going on, and it's explained in the book and. You know, that really had a lot of influence on people because basically Operation Mockingbird was a propaganda tool for the CIA where they were basically paying uh, journalists to get their story out. And it was kind of a counter-terrorism, if you want to call it counter-terrorism, but um, you could in these days since we use that phrase rather a lot. Um, But, you know, on the other side in the FBI was J. Edgar Hoover with all of his files and, you know, whenever somebody needed some information, they always seemed to be going to J. Edgar Hoover's file to get it or, or whatever. And the CIA got a little upset with that and, and basically started Operation Mockingbird. And that, and that part of the fictional book um, is true. So I explain a little bit about Operation Mockingbird, but then I use it fictionally, if you will, um, with one of my characters. So it, it's... It, it was interesting when you go back and you do all this research and you find these little projects that are now coming to light because it's been, you know, so many years later, 50, you know, 40 some years later. Um, and these things are starting to come up and you're like, wow, you know, that really could have influenced us at the time. And, um, and, uh, and our decisions as a electorate, as a citizen of any country, um, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of research that goes in. I always find myself when I'm writing, um, taking questions, asking myself like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have this person like hop on a train. Well, no, wait, what was the train schedule back then? Mm. You know, where, what time of day would it be? Would they be able just to hop on a train or would they be waiting in the station? And it, a lot of different questions like that come up. What kind of car is it? What kind of car model is it? Um, you know, it's, it's what a did big it look challenge. Like? I would it say is. a huge amount of research. You must have, you must have, well, if not um, real files, inches thick of, uh, and that's my file about uh, cars around that time. That's yeah, my I, uh, uh, yeah, a file about you know uh, domestic appliances that were available that you could buy at the time and, and to use them. That's my file on what people ate and what they did. <laughs> Exactly, and it's really um, interesting too because when just the difference in researching the book when I first started writing it. But, I mean, one of the reasons why I kept it in the 1979, 19—I kick it off in November of 79, and it goes up to about November, um, January of 1981 is the first trilogy. That's the time that it covers. And you know, when I started researching this book back in 1979, 1980, I was going to a library and pulling out information and spending lots and lots of times at a library. And I still do some of that, but, you know, most of my library stuff now, thank God, is on the Internet. So I get to find yeah, a you, lot of there, there's There's things. people probably under the age of, of, I don't know, 20, 15, I don't want to offend anybody, but probably going, what's a library? Right, <laughs> and that's exactly. sad because people yeah. don't, don't, actively go out okay if there maybe there's a college library or there's a municipal library in their area but essentially it's not a daily or a weekly practice now we all remember with the little 
tickets, you know, uh, that you had. You, you Index ha cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you handed the ticket over, got stamped, and then you took yes. your book, and then you brought it back, and the lady or the guy there said, uh, you owe us uh, 50 cents because uh, this was due back last Monday, not this Monday. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah and the, the internet has changed so much of that now. As, right. as researchers, as readers, and as how we consume all of the things we consume now in, in what we, we read and watch. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember when, I mean, just the difference in searching the Internet has changed in the last 10 years so dramatically. I mean, I can remember when the Internet first came online and trying to search, you had to have almost the exact word search yeah, yeah. to match what you were looking for. And now you can type in a question and you get, you know, hundreds yeah. and thousands of answers. I mean, that that, that was totally different. So, um, it, in a way, it's kind of scary because if all of that went away, would the generations after us really be able to figure out what they needed to do? Yeah, if they were so, researching a book uh, on, the, on, on life in the 2020s, what the hell were they doing then? Right. Talk right, to me. Talk yeah. to me a little bit then. If we if we look at because the internet has not only changed publishing how we publish, you know, how we read, how we consume, but just before we 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 move from the 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 books and the writing, just just reflect back um, before we close out this part of the discussion on how the internet for you as a writer has impacted on marketing and the marketing of your books and how you use it now yeah you know social media is is great because um you you learn to use hashtags mm -hmm. to to help do it i i actually use it to post teasers for the book that i have coming out soon and and also in some of the marketing of the books that are already out i'll post a teaser of it and you know ask the question you know what do you think is going to happen here? And um, I've actually, the, the Internet has, well, connected you and I, for example. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even known you were over there in Amsterdam yeah, if it wasn't for, for the Internet. And, um, you know, I, I've actually have a lot of international contacts that I wouldn't have if it wasn't for the Internet. Um, so marketing that way, you know, making those connections is, is very, very helpful. Um you know, there's there's a ton of companies that are out there that you can put your book out with. Um, there are a ton of, you know, firms that are out there doing, small companies that are out there doing book tours, for example, blog tours yeah. um, that you can market through. Um, there are people that are doing podcasts that you can, um, you know, go on and talk about your books about. So there's all kinds of uh, opportunities to market yourself that you can look up and find on the internet, um, you know, and that, and organizations, associations like Ally and, um, a number of, uh, writing organizations, thrill writers and things like that, that have a lot of information, uh, for you to look up and, and, uh, ways that you can market your book. Now, you know, having said that, you know, like there's Facebook ads and there's, you know, Twitter ads mm -hmm. and there's Amazon ads and things like that. Um, you know, you, you have to redefine what you're looking for when you're doing that because just because you spend a couple hundred dollars on a Facebook ad doesn't result in double that in book sales. Absolutely. At, at, at least for me. So you know, it, may, it might for Stephen King, but it doesn't for, you know, us lesser known um, authors. So you, you have to understand that what you're doing with that is you're just trying to raise awareness that you're out there um, and, and spend, I say, spend accordingly because you're not going to 
you know, it's not going to absolutely result in book sales right off. Um, so you need to, and, to have it's, it's part of building the building the, the, the author platform. And, uh, you know, right. I've, I, I've consulted with some authors and I know it's, it's, you know, boots for certain ground. And some authors will say to me, oh, you know, I'm not really keen on social media. And, and when we're specifically discussing marketing, and I'll say with a deep breath, okay, <laughs> but you now now you're really make, making this, you know, difficult. This is going to be difficult. It's difficult, yeah. yeah. And and I sort of say, well, okay, then you maybe need to consider, you know, more traditional forms of marketing, uh, right. what we call older style marketing, you know, mm-hmm. um. And unfortunately, the difference with social media marketing and old style marketing is that, you know, old style marketing is logos taking out, you know, TV, radio sponsorship uh, is Mm -hmm. uh, taking out, you know, ads in magazines. And that is where is what some big publishers do, but they also mix it with social media. But. That's right. where you need your fifty thousand dollar, one hundred thousand right. dollar, you know, package, you know, to invest. And of course, most authors, even traditional authors, don't have that kind of, you know, spare income uh, to throw it, throw it a, a book marketing project. Right, right. Uh, you know, I, I one of the things that uh, I'm at the position of is looking at how to um, be. You know, get awareness out there that I am an author and that I have books out there. I've got three books out there. It's not that, you know, like I'm doing this on my first book. I I did a lot of, um, you know, if you want to call it free stuff um, to get for my first book, like giveaways and things like that to get attention. And, you know, quickly found out that I was getting emails from people, which I love, um, that basically are saying, you know, when's the second book going to be ready? And I'm not, I'm like, you know, 3,000 words into writing my second book. So, so yeah, it, well, it's going to be a while. So, and I really, you know, I am in awe of folks who can put books, you know, more than one book out a year. And I, I usually, it usually takes me a year with all the research that I have to mm-hmm. do historically and then the writing, the free write, and going on into the, the whole process of putting the book together with plot points and things like that. So I do a huge free write of just scenes. And then um, at some point, you know, I do a sketchy outline at the beginning saying this is where I kind of want it to go. I went, like, for my second trilogy that I'm working on now, I had to find that one piece of history that I wanted to use Mm -hmm. as the thread through this whole trilogy. And that took me probably three months to find. And then I found it. And I said, okay, now I have to write this. I wrote this real loose outline of how I wanted the trilogy to go. And now I'm in what I call the free write, where I'm actually, I'm up to about 78,000 words. And I'm just writing scenes, you know. And and then from there, I will go back and write my actual outline for each book and start to pull that together. So I'm still probably six months away from starting my my first trilogy book um, and getting that one out there. But I'm hoping that if I do this full free write over the whole trilogy, that I'll be able to get the books out, you know, quicker. Um, and since I have the first trilogy already out, uh, you know, there I have to take time to market that. So it, it's it's um it's an interesting dilemma but it's fun (laughs) (laughs) 
but it's fun. I mean, you have to like doing this. Uh, um, absolutely, yeah, it, it, it definitely. It's it's like a a career in writing, and if yeah. you're anyway successful, and even if you're only moderately successful, or you're just doing it, you know, you're you're doing it for the passion because you love doing it. If you don't, right. you know, you you can't write, um, just for the sake of writing. You know, if you, no. you don't understand your audience, the passion and the, and the love of of doing what you do. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, I I was uh, talking with someone and they were saying, you know, do you write every day? And I was like, well, yeah, (laughs) you know, because I love to. Yeah. And um, you know, how many words do you write? And it's anywhere from you know, if it's an hour or two, uh, you know, I go anywhere from a thousand words to up to five or six thousand words a day, depending on how much time I have. And then you know, like in all honesty, something may happen where I don't get to write the next day. You know, I usually tack on that word count. So that's why I usually end up mm-hmm. at the 6,000 word count is because I hadn't been able to write a lot and wanted to catch up. So, um, yeah, so it's it's a matter of scheduling. I mean, there is a discipline here. Um, you have to, to have that discipline to, to make it happen. Otherwise, you're walking around going, yeah, I'll get to that writing later. Mm. You know, it's and it, it never happens. But you have to treat it like a job. You know, I have X amount of hours a day that I spend researching and writing and, and um, that's, that hopefully pays off in a, a really great book. So, the other passion, of course, in your life is the visual arts. Yes. No. Yes. Talk to me yeah, about that. How that all happened. You know, we're almost going back to Ohio now when you were younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was I was uh, working at PNG. It was the 1990s. Yeah. Um, and you know, as everybody, when you work for corporate America or or the nine to five jobs. You know they're paying you for 40 hours a week, yeah. and and at PNG they're actually paying you for 40 hours a week, but expecting more like and any I'm not, it's not I'm not picking on PNG, mm-hmm. but any big corporation, you know they pay you for 40 but expect you to work 60. Yeah. So so uh, and I don't think that's uncommon. I'm watching my nie- nephews and nieces and battling with their you know companies and and how much time, but. Um, I really got away from create being creative during uh, the late 80s into the 90s, and there was a lot of pressure on my performance at that particular company. Mm-hmm. So um, I found a little way to become creative, and that was I found an art center uh, that was giving out painting lessons, lessons that you paid for, and ev- two hours a week, every Thursday night, I went to paint an oil painting. And so um, that really started to interest me, and uh, it was a creative outlet. At that time, I wasn't writing as much. If I was writing, it was typically technical writing at work, and by the time I got home, my brain was so fried, I couldn't think about it. But Thursday nights, every Thursday night for two hours, I allowed myself to be creative, and that was my creative outlet, was painting, oil painting. So... In 2006, when I resigned, I actually started working for uh, one of the master artists that's known internationally. Uh, his name's Kevin McPherson. I became his assistant and was helping him on the business side, and and he was helping me, mentoring me on my art. And that's when I started. Actually, when I left P&G, I started thinking that I could make a living being an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is some commonality between being an artist and being an author, and that is... Um, you know, it's very, very hard to break through and it's very, very hard to make that uh, a living. Uh, So, you know, when I was working with Kevin, it worked out really, really well. Um, We started a little internet company called uh, Artist Mentors Online Mm -hmm. where we were mentoring other artists uh, on a website, through a website. 
they would we would have lessons for them they would paint uh the lessons and then kevin would critique them and i was in charge of building the website and and putting content out so I, my writing turned from writing fiction yeah. to actually writing blog content for our artists that were part of that and um and so, you know, I, while I was, I was, it was best of both worlds, actually, I was painting, I was getting mentored by Kevin for my art, uh, to learn about my art, which in turn, I ended up writing blogs about, which was helpful to other artists. So it was, um, it was, it was an interesting time. And that went, that lasted to about 2009 or so. Um, and then, uh, Kevin uh, and I kind of went in the, in different directions, which is typical when you're, you know, an artist. Yeah, um, yeah. So he kind of reinvented uh, himself and, st and got very, very interested in portraiture. And so he's kind of went that way. And I'm an instructor down at the art center that I actually started taking um, instruction from in the 1990s. So I'm now teaching down there and um, have a lot of uh, connections and a lot of friends in the art world. Uh, so, yeah, so there are days when I decide that I don't want to write that I'll go down. I was and just going to ask, is it, do you find sometimes there's a, an, an internal mental battle between, you know, the art, the writing, the yeah. art. <laughs> yeah, there is. Actually, my husband is, is the one that puts more pressure on me yeah. than, than I, um, he really likes the way I paint. Um, I paint with palette knives, a lot with palette knives, but you can't tell it's palette knife. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times with palette knife, you get a lot of hard edges, and it's really hard for the eyes to understand what they're seeing because you're always constantly stopping and starting. And and I don't do that. I I have I make myself use a palette knife in a way that you know I'm uh, very very conscious of all the edges that I'm I'm using. And um, so yeah, my husband is the one who's like, why don't you go down and paint? <laughs> It's like, no, I want to write today, you know, <laughs> so, a constant thing like that. And, he, and, and, and I do do commissions. So, you know, like there'll be times when I, I will be paid to paint somebody's painting because they want, they want a specific, a specific thing and, you know, they're contracting with me. So I have to have that done in a specific yeah, time. Yeah. So, so then it is, you know, yeah, okay, well you got to go down and paint. And there are times when I'm like walking down to the studio to paint going, I really rather I'm really, write. Really writing. <laughs> yeah, I really rather write, but I'm getting paid for this, so I better <laughs> I better go down and paint. But yeah, so it's it's um it's fun. It, it. I mean, gosh, if that's the worst thing that happens yeah. in my day, then you know, you know that's I'm not the I suppose it, when we we sort of before we move into our next topic, uh, uh, but sort of as as a way of getting there, um, I suppose I'll ask the same question on 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 the the art. You know, in general, the art world, how technology and the internet has has influenced that over the past couple of decades. But you know, it's interesting. Is um, is it? Is, do do I get the impression it's maybe not quite as much as as for for writing what, and for authors, publishing? Uh, it isn't in the standpoint you know, that I don't know. You know, there's there's like there's this internal battle that's kind of happening with me right now. When you ask the question, um, I think the the probably the worst thing that it has done in two two ways of talking that is is it puts pressure on the artist to get out in the market sooner so um early on in there's a saying that you have to paint miles thousands of miles of canvas yeah. before you 
actually reach your voice okay and in, it's probably in, in a sense, sense as well i suppose of uh, you know i always tell authors you know you, you know look you're not become you're going to become famous on the first book sometimes it takes three or four books to really start establishing yourself and i guess it's it's the same way in all areas of creative life yeah i mean the the I basically just went through my studio um, about a year and a half ago and took an X-Acto knife and ripped through paintings that I never wanted anybody to see. And those were my beginning paintings, okay, um, which I was out marketing. And now looking where my art is and looking back at those paintings, I never should have been out there that early. I should have just sat there and studied and studied and studied and, and painted and painted and painted and then kind of like hit the market with where I am now. And so that that's kind of a, um, a watch out that I try to tell my students is, you know, if you're doing this on your Facebook account and it's family and friends, mm -hmm. good for you, not a problem. But if you're going to go out and try to market, um, you know, you, you need to be painting every day. You need to be uh, refining everything. You need to be out there learning from the master artists that are out there. One of the things that I also encourage my students to do is to do a study of a, a past master because you learn so much mm -hmm. trying to copy what they're doing. I also tell them they're not allowed to sell that and they're not allowed <laughs> to yeah, enter yeah. into anything. And you know that's their personal copy. Um, but you do learn a lot that way. Um, it's it's and, and you can compare that to authors reading other authors' work. You know, I, and how I, they handle I, I have to ask the question because you mentioned it there um, in a creative sense talking about you know going through uh, all the old canvases and taking the exacto <laughs> knife and saying what the hell was I thinking then uh, uh -huh. <laughs> have, you, have you do you do that with manuscripts as well you know that you wrote two three decades oh. ago <laughs> yeah I have a, I have a stack of my first book is like this yeah. well, I can't get my hands up. There was about twelve inches stack of scenes that um, I had, that, and those were all handwritten at the time because we didn't have the word processors, the computers, mm -hmm. and I did, and I hated typing on the old typewriters. Yeah. So you know, I handwritten a lot, written a lot of things, and and I have a stack of that sitting in a drawer in the other room. And part of me is like, you know, that was my first book. It took me twelve years to write because I was working at Procter and Gamble, yeah. and I can't throw it away because it took a lot of writing. But I can't stand reading it either. So <laughs> I keep wondering why I have it. So, so for now, I'm gonna leave it where it is you know propping up the missing leg on a couch <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's hidden in a drawer for a reason and it still, it's it still has out. a function <laughs> it's taking yeah. space up. <laughs> yeah. yeah when i move if i move from ohio to somewhere else i'm not particularly sure yeah. i'm gonna keep yeah, it yeah it's gonna go <laughs> um, yeah, so. let's let's move on to our final topic then today um you and i really uh, as so many of my uh, guests uh, met through social media mm -hmm. and uh, much of our discussion you know isn't just uh, around authorship and, and publishing a lot of it has been around the media and, and politics and um, so yeah I suppose we're at that stage of the the program where we 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 and, and of course this is something re reflected as well in in your your work uh mm -hmm. the, the fiction you write um it's been a strange two or three years hasn't it in american political yeah, history <laughs> yeah it sure has it's um <laughs> i i don't it really helps when i write 
when I go back into the 1980s and mm. the 90s and I look at, you know, a lot of folks are saying we've never been this divided. You know, yeah. We haven't been this divided since the Civil War. And I, and I kind of question that because every time I go back into history, I keep finding how the left doesn't seem to want to work with the right or vice versa. Point the finger wherever you want. Mm-hmm. But there's always been a lot of decisiveness and there's always been a lot of competition. And, um, you know, history does a great great thing because it cleans up a lot of stuff and uh, a lot of that stuff we tend to forget and you know we it's it was it was very divisive back in the 80s between um the the right and the left and um you know what we should be doing and and in a way that that tug between the two of them is a good thing what i see different between then and now is the ability for people to reach beyond that divisiveness to reach compromise and negotiation. Um, you know, obstruction has been one of the key words that everybody's been using is, and, um, and, and we, we, you know, to, to be fair, you know, we, we, you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves, look, you know, obstruction isn't just here now with the Democrats, you know, it was there as well, you know, when, uh, during, uh, you know, uh, President Obama's uh, administration was there with, the, you know, so it works both ways. And also historically, we've seen it, we're certainly seeing oh, yeah. much more divisiveness now than perhaps we've previously seen. I mean, a lot of people felt there was going to be an awful lot of divisiveness at the time. I think Ronald Reagan um, became president, but he seems to have had that gift very quickly of mastering both you know main political parties and getting them to work together which is something that we're not seeing and there's no encouraging signs that we're we're seeing that and i suppose the question is you know how how do we change that how how can we change that i yeah good luck (laughs) (laughs) right well that's the end of that (laughs) (laughs) wait you uh, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, yes. um, who who resigned really quickly. He's mm-hmm. he. I'm in his district, okay. Yeah. And while he was Speaker of the House, he I was not a fan of John Boehner. But since he has left, and he's actually started speaking out about how uh, bad it was and how bad it is. You know, I'm kind of sitting there like he he came back on. There was a an article written on the health care vote, and he says you're never going to get anybody to agree. That is the bottom line, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is a guy who was inside, and probably the reason why I left was I've had enough of this. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, you know, the the parties can't align, and he couldn't get them to align. And you know, I'm not really sure. It's going to take some people um, jettisoning the ego. And and basically saying, you know, we got to do this. We got to get together. And and I haven't seen a lot of uh, politicians that I've been really really hopeful for uh, lately to to kind of do that reach across mm-hmm. the aisle. But there's one or two or three out there that I think uh, are coming up now that realize that they have to do that. And I'm talking younger generations, mm-hmm. not the older folks. Um, you know, there's a couple young young ones out there that I think yeah. are know that they have to start doing this and really starting to change that so one of the it's things, gonna take a while yeah one of the things that struck me and i follow this obviously like so many of us fascinated you know you don't even have to be a citizen of the united states to have been fascinated by following this whole process over the last two or three years but one thing that struck me was and I, I have a reasonably good knowledge of American politics, certainly mo- modern um, yes. American politics. Yeah. And I remember 
when we went through the process of the Republican Party's nomination, you know, and we had those, what was it, 17, I think, uh, at one stage. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, okay, I, I consider myself more a, a sort of, I don't want to say a Democrat, because I'm not, like, I don't live in, you know, on, on, in my country and other countries, there, there isn't a, such a Republican, Democrat, you know, it's a yep. bo- boxes, you know, that, that parties, you know, to, particularly in the European system, tend to work, even multiple parties tend to be able to work together uh, and, and the process is much easier uh, after an election uh, when all the sort of chips fall into place. And one thing I found was, there I am, I remember one evening and it was one of the debates, the, the Republican debates, and I, it was at an early stage. And I think pretty much if there wasn't 17, there was like 14 or, or 12 of them uh, still still standing, as it were. Still too and, many. Yeah, yeah, still too many. <laughs> and uh, well, well, we'll talk about that in a second when we get to the uh, Democrat side. And it struck me. I thought, what? I thought, uh, have, uh, am I developing some sort of mental disorder? And I'm looking <laughs> at the TV and I thought, what are you doing, Mick? That, that's Rand Paul. You're, you're nodding. Stop it. Stop nodding. <laughs> And and in uh, particularly in the recent year, and God knows, you know, he's he's had his uh, significant health issue uh, recently. And and there I am nodding with people like John McCain, mm. and, I, and I'm nodding at things that even Lindsey Graham says, "How crazy mm-hmm. is this?" And I'm going, yeah. "What kind of surreal universe are, am I in?" You know, right? And you know, it's it's just like what I. I that's the most difficult thing I found, and, and, and as you say, uh, you're right. Uh, I think seventeen. Uh, I think when uh, p- perhaps, perhaps you can suggest I'm wrong. I think when Donald Trump threw his hat in the ring, I think the Republican Party panicked and thought, "Oh my God, okay, how do we deal with this?" And they just threw the kitchen sink at it. Let's get as many people in here to try and water it all down. It'll be fine. We'll get through this. You know, he'll drop out after two or three of them. And it didn't happen. And I remember thinking to myself, as this all went on, and somebody asked me, who do you think the best one? I said, well, you know, it's fairly clear that, you know, little Marco, Marco Rubio and (laughs) Ted Cruz, you know, it's it's clearly, you know, that they are there. Be very quickly coming out as the, uh, the the front runners, and I said, "But you know what? I have a terrible sinking feeling. They're not. I actually think Donald Trump is going to win the Republican nomination. He's tapped into something that the rest of them just cannot see and are not picking up on. And mm-hmm. it's just they're just it's just a load of infighting, and they were like skittles just knocking each other over. <laughs> right, right. Sorry, I yeah, went on there. You, you, your your no, thoughts? No, no, no. No, no, very similar to yours. Um, I, you know, it was this whole, I blame the, the reality TV yeah, uh, yeah. mentality, okay? And he tapped into that. He knows how to work that very, very well. I don't watch reality TV except for the news. And, <laughs> and the reason why I said it that way was basically because I really do think that a lot of the the news channels like CNN and MSNBC and a number of them have really yeah. gotten into the, the talking heads, make it reality. We have to shout at one another instead of just, you know, yeah, and it's, it's transcending into politics or it's reflecting yeah. politics, whatever way you want to look at it. But I think one is as yeah, much is an influence it. as the other. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, we are, no matter where you live, uh, across the ocean or, or here or wherever, you know, life is, is pretty busy right now. And um, entertainment is, is key. It is a shutdown point of, you know, I just want to be entertained type of thing. And I think that enters into it a little bit, too. But it's it's definitely this reality TV mentality that everything has to be so dramatic and everything has to be so, you know, much of a production. And um, that has really ramped up, I think, in the last 10, 10 years. And so, yeah, so there was a part of me that was like really hoping that um, he would not get in and uh, Evan, he, he did. So, and we're having fun with Korea right now, North Korea. So uh, that that's going to be kind of an interesting thing to see how you know what happens with that. Hopefully I'll be here to listen to this when it goes out on on your air, Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, somebody's going to have to start reining in the, the, the horse a little bit here. And, and um, I, I don't. I don't think anybody's really. I, 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 I don't see anybody like there. I don't, I, I don't see. I, I, I don't yeah. see it in Paul Ryan. Um, yeah, no, I don't no. see it in any senior, Wait, think, you know, member of that. Okay, we, we, we've had the kind of the the Rampals, the the John McCain, the the people that are would now be politically now kind of considered on the edge. They're right. the more moderate sort of voices, or or at least occupying that stage you know if you could you sort of you know what you yeah. know if, uh, if i think four or five years ago what your Rand paul moderate uh john mccain moderate you know uh maybe they are now yeah well it's kind of interesting too because like if you look through history um if we go back to the beginning of of america you know we had the Whigs. yeah and and then you had john adams who was you know more of a federalist and or I think I got that right. I haven't gone back. I'm not really schooled in history that much, but what I'm getting to is throughout the the history of our political systems, we have had Whigs, Federalists, we've had Jefferson, mm -hmm. Republicans, we've had, you know, Democrats. So, you know, are we at a, a point where maybe the GOP party is starting to split into two different factions? Maybe we'll have three political parties after this. One, you know, we never, America has never done very well at having more than two major political yeah. parties throughout all of its history. And, so, and even traditionally, um, what we might call broadly speaking in America, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know we did have a, a sort of a, a what, what was it called? A, like a liberal, candidate, party, yeah. you know, I, I know kind of like everybody sort of forgets that, you know, there was actually more than, you know, right. uh, two candidates in this. And equally then I go right back to the, was it the 1980s? I can't even remember what was the 1980s or the 19. I think it was the 19, very late 1980s, one of the elections where we had uh, Ross Perot, that was the Clinton Bush yeah, who, who, in '92. Pr probably of all the 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 third standing candidates, seemed to resonate. In fact, I would almost argue he was kind of like an early version of the <laughs> Trump businessman. He, 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 in, in yes, his, he was. Uh, you know, in, yes, in that kind of way. Yeah, and, and I think you know, there, you w always without hear. the reality TV mastery. Well, he had a little bit of that. He yeah. had a couple catch. He had a couple catchphrases. He kept yeah. going back to all the time. But, um, but even so, I mean, basically, what happened, you know, in that in that time period uh, was when you get a third contender uh, running like that. That uh, is pooling. They end, they tend to either pull from one party or the other. I mean, the Republicans will argue that Perot took some of George right. Bush's votes, so he ended up uh, with you know electing Clinton because that vote got taken mm -hmm. from Bush. So, yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> you always have people arguing about that. But typically, there was a there was, and it was right around that t- time in 1992. Um, the Democrats were the ones that had the large field because the incumbent was George H.W. Uh, Bush, mm-hmm. and um, there was you know. Bob Carey from Nebraska, Bill Clinton. Um, I mean, there was a whole slew of folks uh, that were running. Um, and I was, uh, Bill Bradley from New Jersey was running. And I remember right after that, after Bill Clinton was elected, I remember, and I, to this day I keep thinking, was I dreaming? But Bob Carey and Bill Bradley talked about forming a separate party, um, more of a centrist party. Yeah. Uh, that would end up pulling in some Republicans and pulling in some, some Democrats. Democrats. And I remember hearing about that, thinking, oh, great, we're going to have three parties. We have a centrist, we'll have a left and a right. Yeah. And, and you know, I keep wondering what would have happened if that had happened in 1992, because certainly you can see that faction in the, in the Republican Party of, you know, the Tea Partiers that are in there, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the old school Republicans, the grand old party Republicans that are in there. And you keep, I keep waiting for that party to split off. And I, I think if something like that happened, there may be some very, you know, right-leaning Democrats that would end up being in that party uh, because they're, fis- you know, they fis- fiscally want to be more, um, identify more with the Republicans mm-hmm. than they do with the Democrats there. So I certainly in 1992 through 95, 96 saw that that faction very much existed. Um, and, and in that, I, I remember um, Kerry and... and Bradley talking about, you know, that they had talked to McCain about forming forming this party because they felt he was somebody that should that could have come into that party and recruited some of the Republicans mm-hmm. to go in there, but it you know it it comes down to money, um, you know, they would have been walking away from a, a very strong at that point Republican Party uh, with no money coming with them. Um, at the same time, enter into the uh, the mix you know, the Gordon Norquists and the, the Koch brothers and all that really started to become more um, entrenched in the par- process with a lot of money being infused into a party. Um, not saying that that didn't happen on the Democratic side. It certainly did. Yeah. Um, you know, you, on both sides, you have a lot of money going into that, that particular party and uh, a lot of favors being um, bought. Well, what, I suppose yeah. that, that takes it to three candidates, three recognized candidates. We had O'Malley... Sanders and Clinton, Hillary Clinton. What what happened on the Democratic side? What are your thoughts? Where where did it go wrong? Was it always going to go wrong? Did they take their eye off the ball? Was it a case of there were too many hardline people in the Democratic Party who simply would not entertain and put any weight behind another reasonable candidate? Um, or was there was there more outside influences, or is it just the whole Trump thing that he tapped into, or is it a whole mix of that that he tapped into, you know, uh, uh, the disaffected part of the population that maybe hadn't voted before or had voted before but done it with heavy hearts? Yeah, I think there's a faction of people out there who actually really do believe that the government should be run by business. I yeah, think there's yeah. one part of that. Okay, it should be run as a business. It's a, and and, and I, obviously I am not one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, that was that was one of the cries. Uh, let's get a businessman in there. Let's see if he can run it like a business. Not going to happen. It's, you know, this is a government. This isn't business. And then there's a, a, you know, you had to look at. Let's look at 1990. Um, it was Clinton versus Bush. Mm. 
and then in 2000 we had a another Bush W, w you Bush, know yeah. and then and then we ended up with Obama which was a bit of a change um, but you still had that undergrowing um, thing of you know we're spending too much on health care and we're doing too much on these other things and mm-hmm. business you know it really should be run as a business so I think part of that you know art of the deal if you will yeah. with uh, with Trump was look at me I'm a businessman I can make America well, I can fix it you yeah. Know, yeah I can fix it um, I think anybody who has any political background or has studied any government knew that that you know wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. but um, and I think when we got ended up with Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee, we were back into, don't we have anybody else? And I think that Bernie did an excellent job of energizing a base that the Democratic Party didn't know how to deal yeah, with. Yeah, couldn't. The younger, yeah. the younger generations. And, you know, I think a lot of the Democrats were hoping that Hillary would tap into a, a woman's vote, that the women would get out and vote. Mm. Um, but, you know, quite honestly, I don't, I don't vote on a person because of color or, 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 or gender or, or whatever. You know, it, to me, it's what are you standing for? What's the platform that mm-hmm. you're putting out there? Are you going to do the things that I think need to be done? And I'm not saying that I have the answer to that, but I need to hear what you're going to say. And that's, you know, I, I do it on yeah. more on data than I do on personality or gender or race or, or anything like that. And um, I, I, mean, I can honestly tell you the day that I went to vote, um, I was entering the polls with tears in my eyes because I knew that she wasn't going to win. I, hmm. I mean, before I cast the vote, I knew who was going to win, and yeah. that was very upsetting. It was a very upsetting day, and uh, th- th- you know, <laughs> it's like the Democrats celebrating a health care vote. I sit there and laugh and go, "You guys haven't done anything." You know, it's not. Let, let's. The GOP imploded, <laughs> so yeah. let's not go and take a lot of credit that look what we did. We stopped health care. Yeah, you didn't yeah. come up. You didn't come you didn't up come with up your own an alternative. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't come up and say, okay, this is how we're going to fix, you know, the Affordable Care Act. So let, let's be smart here. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of fault on both parties at this point. Um, one is not leading um, and has an opportunity to step out as a leader and is not doing it. Is in my opinion failing. Uh, miserably at doing that. So, um, you know, I can blame the right as much as I can blame the left at what is going on. I suppose on. On, the, on the Republican side, it's that, you know, belief that, look, we won both houses, we, we won the, uh, the electoral um, uh, vote. Uh, and right. basically, we, we're not going to, you're okay, you just sit there, boys and girls, we don't need your help. And it's now beginning, I would like to think, we'd all like to think, it's beginning <laughs> to dawn on them. That, you know, you can try and fix the numbers so it goes down to 51 votes now, but ultimately you don't have the numbers to do this totally on your own, or you're going to get nothing done in four years. Right, and you have some very, again, egotistical and proud leaders in those positions of um, majority leader in the Senate who absolutely does feel that he can some way swindle his way into these victories. Um, I mean, we're seeing you know, a lot of, a lot of. I think if you look back behind what just the news presents to you, you're seeing a lot of incriminating things going on. I mean, the Constitution was always supposed to be flexible, but at some point I always wonder how much flexibility it actually has. Yeah. And um, they're, they're testing that. To, uh, there are certainly times some knots in it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
you know, I, I, I kind of sit here and hold my breath, like just one more little bend. Let's see if we can make it, you know, make it not. Work. I suppose looking, <laughs> looking at the future, um, mm-hmm. is it going to be the full four years? Do you think with Donald Trump or will ultimately, as we say, will the constitutional bend eventually reach a point and snap and some <laughs> even a small amount of and, and that's all it would take a small amount of people in the republican party are going to step forward and say enough's enough we you know well, I, it doesn't yeah, look think, like it's certainly coming towards the midterms yeah I, we had had this kind of a conversation before um i don't I, a lot of people think oh in six months he'll be gone or in yeah, seven no, or eight months he'll be gone even impeachment doesn't work that way yeah, P- impeachment doesn't work that way. I mean, we're looking at. I mean, it took two years two in Watergate. Years, yeah, it's no, it's no different here. It's going to be two years here before they actually get to the point where yeah. they can actually, you know, start. In, with in the fact, I'd nearly argue, it, it, it's like a, a marathon runner who keeps looking at the line, and although he knows how much more energy he's got, and it's just saying, you know, if I can get another twenty yards, I'll yeah. still fall over that line, and I think that's where Trump is at the moment he's thinking right. if i can get another just somehow get another six to nine months out of the, out of this i don't care what happens because by the time it does happen i'll have done my four years and then i can say hey you know i did it tell just yeah right you know I'm, I'm not interested in this anymore yeah i think if it um I think a lot of it comes down to how much he really starts taunting north korea um yeah I think we're, in, we're in a dangerous keep, place at the moment the last couple of days yeah. Yeah, and you know if he keeps this up, I think it's going to be you know hey we just we just can't deal with that. Yeah. Um, uh, that I think he needs to be. If anything makes him be removed, uh, I think that would be would be it. Um, and actually, if anybody dies over this, I mean you know they don't have to come to our west coast to hurt us. I mean, the conversation yeah, yeah. that they're starting now with with, um, yeah, with striking Guam, Guam is yeah. that that is a big strike. I mean, that yeah. would that would hurt because that's our spearhead into that area. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, y- you can't you can't be doing this. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I just sit there and go, Are we in Doctor Strange Love? When's yeah. when you know when's Shu from Wag the Dog gonna show up? Yeah. You know, so now we're in this military thing and. You know, if anybody hasn't seen Wag the Dog, they, they need to watch that. <laughs> because, I mean, there are times when I just keep going, well, bring out old shoe. <laughs> Write a song for old shoe, you know. So, and, and then all of a sudden I turned around, I came back from art class yesterday, and, and this whole North Korea blue, thing blew up when I was in art class teaching and came back, and I'm like, reading Facebook, I saw your tweet, your your fake tweets the, that you oh, put yes. out. Oh, like, I still get the, the, the extraordinary, which just says the the presence of time that we're in i still get 50 percent of people asking me he 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 didn't really say that 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 is fake isn't it or or (laughs) is that real and i'm saying gino it's really sad when you have to ask me that that's that's where we are now that's how sad Mm -hmm. this is i can i can in a fake tweet tweet say anything and put words in the president of the united states and 50 percent of my social media audience will ask themselves my god he said that i can't believe that yeah maybe uh, well maybe no wait maybe i can maybe he did say that oh my god i don't know whether he did or didn't what's real Mm -hmm. what isn't real and that really was an experiment i started 12 months ago 
and I continue it now because it still becomes fascinating. And sometimes I create one of those fake tweets in the evening in reflection maybe of what's happened that day. And I frighten myself then when I go and I look at real Donald Trump and I look at the 6 a.m. tweets the following morning and I go, I could have written that for him. That's virtually some of the same words that I've used and that that's what's frightening in the world we're living in yeah. now. Well actually, you know, he follows you on Facebook and, yeah. and Twitter and he's actually just oh look, my friend Nick said this. So now <laughs> and that must be I better say that as well. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's um I don't know. I, I um you know, you could always do the thing of if I were his chief of staff, what would mm. I be doing? Uh type of conversations. Yeah. And one of the thing is is I would be paying, you know, hide his phone. Um, yeah. If I could get it out of his hands, he he would never get it back. That would be one thing. Um, you know, and, and I think it's it's really really sad. There was this um, air of respect, and and I mean, y- you could talk about it probably more than I can with being from Ireland originally and now yeah. living in Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's the United States was the country that a lot of people looked up to. Even you know, in the last fifteen twenty years, we still had that. Um, even though there was a lot of div- divisiveness and stuff that was going on, we had leaders that yeah. were leaders. And yeah, and, I, and I, as, I, as I touched on earlier, um, he's not my politics. I don't agree with an awful lot of what he might have done as president, but I still have tremendous respect for some of the things, some of the things that Ronald Reagan did and, and the manner in yeah. which he dealt with, perhaps not in the, his, his, his second four years, I, I think by then we ultimately historically now know that, you know, that there were health issues there arising, right. you know, but any president as, as a, 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 a foreign person, you know, living abroad, right. watching this, you know, for most presidents, regardless, you know, I have respect for them right. and their office and I listen to what they say. I'll consider what they say, um, but I just have no respect for this president because yeah, I, I, don't can't, I can't have respect for somebody who does not respect the office in which they sit and does not respect the office of the other people and expects loyalty over respect for their office. That's yeah. untenable to me. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, part of the thing... I think we're getting a really big, big lesson here on mm. why you don't run a government like a business. Yes, yeah. You know, you, 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 in, in business, it's okay for you to try and take out your competition. Um, you don't have a lot of allies in a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a lot of companies working hand-in-hand together. But you have a lot of nations that work hand-in-hand together. And you have the whole intelligence community and, and ticking off the tel- intelligence community you know, to the point where they're saying they're not going to share and tell with the United States. Well, um, you need to wake up, folks, because you know what? We aren't the best and the brightest in the intel unit it, it, industry, you know, a nation by itself. It, it's all of us working mm-hmm. together and piecing that jigsaw puzzle together. Um, you know, I always said to a lot of folks is uh, you don't want to mess with the Mossad. You never want to mess with the yeah. Mossad. You know, they do a lot of the, the stuff that we legally can't do. Uh, because we've restricted our CIA through uh, bills and acts and amendments and things like that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the other intelligent agencies aren't restricted in, a, in that certain way. So 
it, it's kind of interesting from that standpoint that you know the first thing he did was tick off folks to the point where they did, they didn't yeah. want to share intelligence with us, which hampers our and our ability to a help them and b hampers us here at home. Um, well, exactly because the, 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 the five eyes become one eye, the cyclops. Exactly. Exactly. So um, hopefully that's all being worked, um, you know, at the level that it needs to be worked and and out of and kept out of the Oval Office, which is something that I would have said shouldn't be done, you know, just two years ago. Yeah. yeah. It's like hopefully he's not really leading this. Hopefully these other people are leading it. You know, he really puts to test that, you know, strong central government versus uh, state government versus, you know, other uh, entities uh, governing, but um, he he puts that argument to test for sure. So, absolutely. Well, let's yeah. let's try and end up on a on a, a positive note that <laughs> uh, that ultimately in the the coming months, uh, people from both parties uh, will get more of a backbone, stand up, and if we have to have uh, the remaining term of President Trump, let's hope that it can be a hell of a lot more positive and less chaotic than it has been up till now, uh, yeah, yes, because please. if not, this is not going to end well for any of us. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that I remember, I, I wrote an open letter, which is out on my blog, to Sherrod Brown, mm-hmm. who's my senator in Ohio, one of my senators in Ohio, and I, I basically, it was like the two days or three days after Trump uh, was voted in, and one of the things that, that I said to him was, you know, you have to understand, you know, and I think he does because he's a very bright guy, um, that the seat of power isn't just the executive branch, that actually the the legislative branch is, is and, and the Senate upper house is where a lot of the power sits. Um, you know, they, they have the ability to remove a leader, they have the ability to, you know, make laws. So, as much as Trump is there, they, they could isolate him and they could still get things done <laughs> if yeah. they had the plan and and the ability to reach across the aisle and negotiate and compromise on both sides. And and that's kind of like the letter that I wrote to Sherrod Brown. And, and I took a lot of solace in the fact that, you know, we do have checks and balances. And as long as we had checks and balances, hopefully, we you know, this will get through these next four years. Um, and that's kind of where I was. Now, I don't feel all that um, secure right this second, but hopefully, you know, hearing hearing people stepping up and basically saying, you know, you're unhinged, you shouldn't be saying these things, and that's the, the body of power that should be saying that, yeah. um, is saying that. So, it's it from that standpoint, the checks and balances at this point are still working, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to do so. Hopefully, hopefully. Yep. Linda Riesenberg-Feisler, it's been a pleasure uh talking to you today uh i think we've covered a lot there (laughs) we have actually we left out the gene roddenberry story oh oh, let's let's no let's finish very quickly let's finish on gene a a nice upbeat let's let's push the trump train out of the station gene roddenberry come on in tell yes you're right i forgot about this i wanted to talk about this very quickly let's give give me the uh, gene roddenberry story the only reason why i I said it is because i brought the letter up oh right right i see i see very good (laughs) So what happened was uh, I wrote a script uh, for Star Trek The Next Generation, and I was this brash young kid, and I decided that I was going to send it out to them to make a, a, a thing, a, a show out of. Yeah. So I um, decided that I was going to send it registered mail to Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. 
And I did. And Gene walked down from his office and signed the little green piece of paper that came back to me that said that they received the script. Yeah. And um, then about two months later or so, I got uh, a letter back, um, and it actually was from Eric Stilwell. So anybody who's a big Star Trek Next Generation fan, you will know who Eric Stilwell is. Mm -hmm. He kind of took over for um, Gene Roddenberry on that series. And Eric gave me everything I needed to resubmit my rejected script the proper way. I mean, inside this envelope, there is three sheets of papers with um, agents' names circled on them that he suggested I should call. Yeah. I mean, it went on, a, well, being 20-some years old at the time, I read it as, oh, yeah, well, it's rejected. I guess yeah, I can't write. Rejection, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I threw it away. Oh, I boy. <laughs> so... <laughs> so Basically, I was down in my studio painting one day, and I ran across this, and I opened the thing up, and I'm reading the letter from Eric, which was a very positive letter. And in close, please find the, the agent's names that I want you to contact, and here's the submission line, so change the scripts this way. And, and I was just, I, I just walked over and started hitting my head against the wall that I did <laughs> not follow up with that. So I ended up, um, that's what really pushed me to get my first book out there self-published, so... So that's that story. Well, that's the, that story. <laughs> Linda, it's been a pleasure. And you're, I'm always delighted to have you on again. Um, God knows what we'll be discussing then. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to come back on, Mick. Thanks for the okay. invitation. For the, so. No problem. We'll say goodbye. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye, everyone. <laughs> Okay, thank you for joining me uh, on the program. Uh, great pleasure to talk to Linda. We'll be with you again shortly, uh, maybe a few more weeks. I'm on vacation for a couple of weeks. We should be back in ooh, maybe early September, maybe the second week in September. Um, and I'm hoping to have an update on Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370 then. Uh, again, I hope you've enjoyed the program. Uh, check all our links uh, wherever you see this uh, video podcast or podcast itself, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you see it. We'll talk to you again soon. in this podcast production. Thank you for your support. 
Radio Aspire. We explore and discover together.